The first reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I and what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Mahola. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I'll give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, Look, the king likes you, and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go into battle, and as often as they did, 
David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. Our reading continues from 1 Samuel chapter 19. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding and stay there. I will, look, I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David, by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told, told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. Once more, war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goats there at the head. When Saul sent the men to catch David, Michael said, he is ill. Then Saul sent them back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's head. Saul said to Michael, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Rath and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Nioth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David at Nioth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah, and went to the great cistern at Seku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over, at, over in Nioth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Nioth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Nioth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Thank you so much, Tom, for reading and Felicity as well. I know there's a lot of narrative that we've covered, a lot of story, but it's good, isn't it? It's a really exciting story. 
that we'll be looking at in a few moments. Well, I'm Nathan, and um, as Ben said, I'm the Assistant Minister here. Really good to see uh, you here today if you're watching online as well. If you're visiting, we've got a mission partner even coming at the back here, uh, Neil. So really good to see you and good to see others um, here today. I should just say as well, um, Rachel and Mary prayed for, for Will, that's Will Adams, his, his dad, some of you might have known, um, died earlier this, this week. Really, really unexpected and sad news. And uh, I know Will's been in touch to say thank you um, for our prayers, but do pray for him and his family in the next few, well, a uh, few weeks and months as they mourn his loss. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. We just sang a few moments ago. Now you are exalted, Jesus, to the highest place, King of the heavens, where one day I'll bow. Father, would we know and see in your word that exalted King today, and would we worship him? In Jesus' name, amen. If I told you that next weekend you're going to go camping, how would you respond? Um, maybe some pictures might, uh, you know, what, what's your experience? Some of you will be excited about camping, um, but it, it tends to evoke a reaction, doesn't it? To hear that, that word. What kind of reaction does it evoke in you? Maybe you're someone like Jeremy and Justin, you know, they've been to the Isles of Scilly in mid-February, 80 mile an hour winds, sideways, horizontal rain, and, and they love it. That's what it's all about. Or maybe you're someone a little bit more like me. It takes about three hours to... Uh, I'm not sure if Justin is loving it, actually. Maybe it's more Jeremy that, that loves it. Um, I can't see behind the mask. Um, maybe, maybe you're more like me. Three hours that you take to kind of work out where the tent pegs are, all of that kind of thing. And then there's creepy crawlies coming in. A tiny bit of something touches the outside, you know, that bit of the tent that means the whole thing's soaked. And you sit there at 1 a.m., Wide awake, freezing cold, thinking, why did we not get an Airbnb? Has anyone else been, been in that case? Or maybe you do the sort of middle-class glamping option. I don't know what you do. Um, but camping, a bit like Marmite, it triggers a reaction, doesn't it? It evokes a response. And as we're in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, we've just heard read out today, we see David. David, God's future king of Israel, evoke a response, a reaction. He's either loved or hated. A bit like Marmite or camping or the last episode of Line of Duty. It's hard to be ambivalent or just shrug your shoulders. You either love him, David, or, or you loathe him in these chapters. You side with him or the people side against him. Some of you might be coming cold into 1 Samuel today. Others might have forgotten that we were in 1 Samuel. Last week feels like a long time ago. Let me just remind you, chapter 16, we saw that, that David, this young man, was anointed. It was a sort of crowning ceremony that was done in secret by the prophet Samuel. But then in chapter 17, last week, we saw that David, this young man, defeated the, 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 the sort of brute from Gath, Philistine. Uh, this man called Goliath, and we know all about that story if you weren't here. And he defeated the enemy very publicly, unlike the crowning. And as um, Dale Ralph Davis, a man who's written a couple of commentaries on these books of the Bible, really great author, as he puts it, as we come into these chapters, Goliath's fall 
shook more than just the ground. Everyone, it seems, now took notice of David. And so chapters 18 and 19, it's all about the response, the response to this man. How will the, the various characters respond to the man on the way to the throne? Or more pertinently, how will we respond to Jesus, God's king installed on the throne? Because there's no more important question in the whole of the universe. Will we love him? Or will we keep him at arm's length? Well, let's look at some of these reactions. First of all, we see Jonathan's love for the Lord's king. Jonathan then is the first one to respond. Have a look at verse one of chapter 18. We're told after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. A covenant is made in verse three. And then have a look at verse four. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Again, just remember, who's Jonathan? Well, Jonathan is Saul, the, the king's son. How would we expect him to react? How would we expect Jonathan to react to David? Not only has his dad, Saul, become a number one fan of David's harp playing, a few chapters ago. Not only has he defeated the man that his dad couldn't defeat, Goliath, David is very much the flavor of the month. And David is objectively a threat to Jonathan's own path to the throne, his own route to be king. See, as Saul's son, Jonathan was the heir to the throne, the crown prince. It makes sense for him to want to eliminate David, doesn't it? This boy from Bethlehem. We expect him to be a rival, yet what are we told twice? that he loved David, that he loved David as himself. We're told there that they became one in spirit, literally knitted together. That's a sort of bit of an unusual phrase we, we, we might think. And it means really comrades in arms together rather than sort of anything sexually that we might read into it. But it's an incredible response. Someone who it seems he should hate, he should despise. There's a friendship built on a bond and allegiance that we'll hear about next week in more detail. But even at this point, just notice in verse four that Jonathan's actions are laden with significance. More than just getting rid of some old clothes, he understands that David needs to be the one on the throne, not him. He, he understands the Lord's purposes and the Lord's plans. Maybe he'd seen and heard the thud of Goliath last time. And he thought, yeah, the, the Lord's with this man. And he's not with my, with my dad, Saul. And by giving him his tunic, his sword, his bow, his belt, Jonathan, the natural heir to the throne, gives David the kingdom. He steps back and gives it to David. It's an incredible response when he should be rivals with him. Silly example. Think of um, Prince Charles. I know there's lots of, uh, there's been jokes, hasn't there, over years that he's desperate to become king. I don't know quite how, how true or not that is. But imagine that he was about to become king and he abdicated the throne just days before. And he gave it instead to someone who no one's ever particularly heard of, that he met at a dinner party a few weeks before. He's a nice guy. And he thought, yeah, this guy should be king rather than me. That would be weird. That wouldn't happen, would it? And and it seems really strange here as well. It makes no sense other than that Jonathan recognized David as the anointed, as the king 
from the Lord, and he loves him. You might have heard, uh, uh, maybe at some point in, in churches in the past, that, that this relationship between David and Jonathan is, is an example to us of a really good friendship. And that is true. But it's more than that. Jonathan is following David. Jonathan loved the Lord's king, and he's not alone. Did you notice when Felicity was reading it out, six times in this chapter we're told that someone loved David? Did you see verse uh, 16? All of Israel and Judah. That's pretty impressive. Um, verse 20, we've gone for, for Michael, 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 I don't know quite how to say her name. Um, she loved David, Saul's daughter. Saul's attendance, verse 22. Everyone loves David. It's hard, isn't it, to think of many people that, that are universally loved. Um, David Attenborough, 95 years old yesterday, apparently. Still going strong. Uh, bringing out Netflix uh, documentaries and those kind of things. David Attenborough, everyone loves David Attenborough, don't they? He's kind of a national treasure, internationally known. Apart from I was listening to a podcast the other day where, where someone actually said that they found David Attenborough a bit annoying. And the podcast host went crazy. That's sort of, what, you know, that's so against the sort of, you know, swimming against the tide of what people think. Everyone seems to love David Attenborough. And, and here in this passage, David, a man after God's own heart, well, he's loved by everybody. Well, nearly everyone, because the second point we're going to go on to shows someone doesn't like him. In fact, Saul, we see his hatred towards the Lord's king. It's important to remember again, again, up until this point, Saul, we're told, liked David very much. Chapter 16, he enjoyed his heart playing. And chapter 17, he's just defeated Goliath, the enemy. But in these chapters, there's a, there's a shocking turn of events. Things bubble up and boil over, and it turns really ugly for King Saul. And it all starts with a song. The troops... Uh, they return from, from the battlefields uh, over their victory of the Philistines. And uh, we're told that the, the women of Israel come. Some of them are dancing, some of them are singing. I'm not going to attempt the, the dancing here today, but I don't know. The song might have gone something like this, a call and response. You know, Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. Saul has slain his... Something like that. And, on, and they were singing along. Don't worry, I'm not going to uh, sing again. But commentaries here suggest that it wasn't deliberately that they were being provocative against Saul, but at least that's how he heard it. And he was struck with, with jealousy. He was struck with fear in his heart. You see what's happened, don't you? David has supplanted him. He is the rejected king, and, and in the affections of his own son, Jonathan, uh, the women of Israel, and the troops, David has supplanted him. They're looking to David now not him. And crucially, we need to see that unlike Jonathan, Saul doesn't step aside and make way for the Lord's anointed king. No, he, his hate and his jealousy, it, it boils over into actions. Have a look at verse 10 of chapter 18. We're told that next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He's prophesying in the house. While David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin him to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Do you remember we've seen this, this evil spirit 
um, from the Lord come upon Saul before a few chapters ago because of his judgment that came upon him for his rebellion. And here he, he again, he, he grabs a spear and he lobs it across the room at, at David. It's terrifying, isn't it? Just think last chapter, who had the spear? Well, it was the enemy Goliath. Now who has the spear against David? Well, it's the king of Israel. Things have changed, haven't they? And verse 12 helpfully shows us really what's going on. We're told Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. The author repeats those phrases, the Lord was with David, the Lord gave him success. And it's really just hammering the home the point that, that this is curtains on Saul's reign because of his disobedience. Everything points to David's ascent to the throne and well, Saul's descent. And it's terrifying for Saul. He feared David. He badly wanted to eliminate him, not just from the spear, but he mixes up his tactics. Uh, did he notice that? Two times he offers his daughters. It's pretty cowardly, isn't it? In marriage. Um, and, and there's a hefty clause in the, the contract because he wants David to go and fight the Philistines again. He presumably thinks, okay, he gets married, he goes to fight the Philistines. They're pretty bloodthirsty. They get him. My hands are clean. Job done. But things don't quite work out with plan A, with uh, his first daughter, Merab. Um, but Michael, we're told, his other daughter loved David. And so he says, okay, you can marry her, but there's a clause in the contract. There's a bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins. Okay? Uh, not quite the last two weeks, you know, uh, two months bank statements or how are you going to financially provide for my daughter kind of chat that might often happen. Um, but David goes above and beyond and brings back 200. And, and verse 28 sort of sums up the whole chapter. Verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. See, David's behavior towards the king throughout this chapter is exemplary. He's noble, he's honorable, in stark contrast to or Saul's unkingliness. Those of you who like diagrams, this uh, might just help out a little bit what we see uh, in these, these chapters. We see kind of at the bottom there, the reactions of Israel, of Jonathan uh, and Michael, where are they going? They're going towards David in love and in the next chapter, protection as well. And the Lord and Samuel as well, therefore King David, everything's heading towards him and actually towards Saul is this rejection towards him as king. And so in Jonathan and, and Saul, we have two very different reactions, don't we? towards the Lord's anointed king. And they hopefully give us a model of how to and how not to respond to the anointed king, Jesus Christ. David is a snapshot we see many times in 1 Samuel of Jesus. And Jesus, of course, himself faced jealousy, didn't he? He faced enmity, dishonor. And, and how did Jesus respond when he faced those things in the gospels? Well, he he responded with integrity, didn't he? With honor. 
And some in the Gospels, like, like Saul, they, they feared and they rejected Jesus. Think of the Pharisees, for example. But we're also seeing, shown in the Gospels that many people loved Jesus, didn't they? Think of the women, Mary and Martha, they loved Christ. Think of the, the tough soldiers, the, the Roman centurion who loved Jesus. The troops, the disciples, the poor, the blind, the sinners, they enjoyed spending time with this man, with Jesus. They recognized him. They saw him as the Lord's anointed king and they loved him. The thing is, though, like Saul, many of us like clinging to our crown, don't we? Clinging to our throne. But being a Christian means that we, we lay down our crown at the feet of Jesus. We give him the place that he deserves. And, and Jonathan models that response really well here, doesn't he? What's he like before the Lord's anointed? Well, he humbly acknowledges that, that David is God's king and not him, and, and he surrenders his rights in the face of that. And Jesus calls us to something very similar, doesn't he? In Mark 8, when he says, if anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. See, following Jesus means recognizing him as king of our lives, not us. But like Jonathan, we're called more than just to submit to God's king. We're called to love him. So can I ask you here today, do you love God's king? Do you love Jesus Christ? Not in a soppy way or a flippant way. You know, I love pizza, I love chocolate, I love cheese. No, in a more robust way. See, it's more than just following or, or accepting. Do you, do you love him? The one who, as we saw last week, overcame death, Satan, sin for you. Do you love him? We're not very good at saying it, are we? Uh, I remember I had a trumpet teacher a few years ago, and looking back on it, it was quite rude, actually, but he, he quite often took, his, took phone calls during my lessons. Maybe I was quite boring, or he just wanted to, I don't know, take a few moments out. But he, he always answered uh, his phone to his girlfriend, always towards the end of the lesson. And it was a small room that we were in, and I could hear, you know, when you could sort of hear what the other person's saying on the phone, a bit awkward, but you're sort of sitting there like a lemon, sort of waiting. And, um, and at the end of every conversation, she always said, I love you. And he never said it back. He, he sort of went for the old, um, yeah, you too. Uh, <clears throat> see, see you later then. All of the, those responses. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I was there or he was British or he didn't love it. No, I'm not going to throw those. I'm not going to throw that out there. But actually, do, do we say, as we pray, as we speak, do, do we say that we love God's king? I know at Trinity we don't tend to sing a lot of these people sort of laugh sometimes don't they or criticize christian songs that are sort of jesus is my boyfriend type songs where you just replace the name of jesus and it could be in the charts we don't sing a lot of those songs but it's good isn't it sometimes to sing songs and to say that we acknowledge him and love him that's what it says in one peter where peter says though you have not seen jesus you love him and even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy. 
And of course, we show one of the ways that we show that we love Jesus is through obeying him. Do you remember Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commands. See, some of us on the other kind of extreme might often say that we love Jesus, but actually, well, our actions and our lives show more of a half-heartedness towards him. Maybe something for Zoom or, or in the park or something to think about maybe on your own this week. Where are some of those areas in your, your life where, yeah, you might say you love Jesus, but actually the reality is, is a long way away from that. Where do we not love God's king, perhaps, in some areas of our lives? Well, we've seen a couple of reactions. Jonathan's, Saul's, and then lastly, the Lord's protection over his king. Reading this, you might think that, that Saul would give up. Things haven't gone very well, have they, in his plans to eliminate David. But no, in this chapter, chapter 19, things get more violent and they get more vicious. And chapter 19 really is a chain of, of attempts on David's life. But really the focus is on God's deliverance of his king. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 19. We're told, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David, think of that, all of the troops, all of the attendants uh, being in the office, of being, you know, the, the black and white photo of David, him, get him at all costs. This is the man. But unfortunately for Saul, his own son, Jonathan, is on team David. And Jonathan's love for David means that his loyalty to God's king trumps the loyalty to even his own father, Saul. So Jonathan, he warns David and he reasons with his dad. Look at verse four. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He's not wrong to you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel and you saw it and were glad. Why then? Would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Jonathan's calm and collected conversation here with his dad seems to bring Saul to his senses. And the situation is resolved, there's peace, but it doesn't last long, does it? The spears are out again. And David dodges the spear and, well, David realises the seriousness here. And it's interesting to know, isn't it? David's been rescued not only here by, by Jonathan, Saul's son, but here now as well from Saul's daughter, Michael. Michael loved David and realized that things were going south. And, and she comes up with a plan that, that sort of, as I was reading this, sort of resembles a teenager trying to sneak out to a party. I don't know if anyone would have to confess or admit this, but the old kind of lift up the window, cover, you know, under the duvet, the pillows and the and the cushions to look like a, a body, and then get make sure you're back by 6 a.m., your parents come in, none the wiser. Teenagers, don't try this at home, I should say. And it works in this case, just about, and David gets away. But before the chapter ends, there's, there's one more attempt. I think the eighth attempt in these chapters on his life. David's escaped, he's, he's led him to Samuel the prophet, we haven't seen him for a while. But yet still, Saul pursues David. He sends his premier hitmen, the thugs of Israel, to finish the job. But look what happens in verse 20. Verse 20, 
So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel, standing there as their leader, the spirit of God came on Saul's men and they also prophesied. And this happens three times. And none of these hitmen do the job that they were ordered to do. Worth saying, I'm not sure exactly what it means when it says prophesying here. It's something different than to proclaiming the word of God in that normal Old Testament sense. Seems like they're praising God in, in some kind of way, I'm not sure. But it leads, verse 23, to Saul to take things into his own hands. The others haven't delivered. And so desperate, he goes down. But what happens to him? The spirit of God came even on him. And at the end of the chapter, he's left naked and humbled. And so David is protected, I think, for the eighth time in these chapters. Big idea from this chapter, the Lord protects his king. Sometimes miraculously, sometimes through means. But the Lord is with his king. He gives him success in all he does. And Saul, let's be honest, he can't lay a finger on God's king, can he? And look, there's a sense in which this kind of protection is true as well for us as ordinary Christians. We can see this as a comfort that the Lord will protect us, that he will rescue us from, as the hymn says, many dangers, toils and snares until he has chosen that it's time to call us home. The enemy can't ultimately hurt us. But yet these verses really point towards well, Jesus Christ who although he faced oppositions and attacks and even death on a cross, rose from the grave. And he is installed as God's king, exalted. And he has all authority given to him in heaven and earth. The enemy can't lay a finger on him. So if we're in Christ, if we have a relationship with him, well, that is the safest place that we can be. How do we draw this together then? Well, siding with God's king, it brings everlasting protection. But these chapters also show the terrifying results of not siding with God's king. See, Saul's downward spiral, it acts as a warning that some of us here today need to hear of, of what it looks like to oppose God's king. There's, um, there's echoes, I think, here of Psalm 2 where it says this, the kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one, a.k.a. Saul. But the one enthroned, we're told in Psalm 2, in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He has installed his king. And Jesus Christ is that king. He's the one who's installed as the Lord's anointed, exalted, reigning, victorious, king over all things. And like David, as we've seen in these chapters, he is the one who rescues. He, Jesus, is the one who leads. And one day, as, as we've sung already, every knee will bow before him as king. Every tongue will confess that he is the anointed and exalted and risen Lord. People on Chapel Market, Amwell Street, our neighbours will confess him as king. So will we be like Jonathan? Will we recognise, will we love God's king? Or will we be like Saul, resisting, 
rejecting, keeping at arm's length the exalted and risen king. It's, it's impossible, as I said last week, to be neutral. There's just no middle ground. Look, whether you like camping, whether you like Marmite, I don't really care. Maybe other people do. Those things don't really matter, do they? But this does. And so let's at Trinity Church Islington be a church who loves Jesus as king, who follows Jesus as king, who gives everything, gives our lives to follow him as king. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for what we know of your son, Jesus Christ, in those accounts that we see of him in, in the Bible, the way that people were attracted to him as a person, his words, his, his character, the fun he must have been to, to have at parties and to be around with. But most of all, that he is a king, he sacrificed his own life, laying down his life as a servant so that we can know him, that we could be rescued and have a relationship with him, the safest place for any of us to be. And I pray that we would respond in the way that Jonathan does to him. And we pray this for this week and for all our days. In Jesus' name, amen.